welcome to Is That Embarrassing? I am your host, Stephanie, um, and we are back with an episode. Last week, postponed the episode. I felt it was important to redirect resources and attention to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, this week, we're back. And so, you know, it's really difficult to just go about recording as normal, given Um, everything that's going on in our world. And so I don't want the momentum of Black Lives Matter to be lost. So I I was kind of brainstorming what can I do to continue contributing both on a personal level and through the podcast. And some of my favorite podcast hosts have been offering free ad space to Black-owned businesses. And so that is what I've decided to do. So just to jump into that real quick, the first Black-owned business that I'm going to do an ad for also happens to be run by strong, independent women. We're here for it. So Unana Zay is a Black woman-owned business that strives to create original, unique designs, making every earring of theirs a statement when you wear it. Each earring is handcrafted to perfection with prices that you cannot beat. Personally, I want to buy every pair of their earrings that I've seen so far, and thanks to their prices, I can. As of right now, you can purchase from Unana Zay exclusively on Etsy, with inventory being added regularly. Another incredible thing about this company is that Xavier, Unana Zay's founder, loves working with people on special custom orders. Custom orders are made through Instagram at Unana Zay, that's O-O-N-A-N-A-Z-A-E, And the custom orders are made only for the person who orders them. So you can have a -a one-of-a-kind pair of earrings that's special and personal to you. A lot of us are getting ready to make our post-quarantine debut. I know I am. And I promise that you need a pair of Unana Zay earrings to do so. Follow Unana Zay on Instagram and get your earrings today. Again, Unana Zay, O-O-N-A-N-A-Z-A-E. Um, so this week's episode, I'm really excited. First, I just want to kind of throw something out there that I've been thinking about personally. Um, this is a really challenging time for so many, right? It's just heavy. Like we've gone from one heavy thing to the next heavy thing from, you know, COVID to quarantine and a lot of people losing their jobs or adapting to working from home. And then there's the whole black people being violently murdered by police, which isn't new, but it's definitely heavy. It's a lot. And so um, I know that personally I've been internalizing a lot and just kind of fighting the good fight and not thinking about it. Uh, But one of my favorite quotes that's always resonated with me is that you can't give from an empty cup. And so I just want to take time to encourage anyone who's listening out there to take a second, like, Unclench your jaw, relax your shoulders, close your eyes, whatever it is that you have to do to just kind of release whatever stress you may be carrying in your body. I think it's really important um, that as a society, we, you know, take care of ourselves so that we can better take care of those around us. And so I just wanted to give that little piece of advice. Um, It's also me preaching at myself because I know that I need it. And so, uh, yeah, this week's episode is really exciting. The format's a little different. Somebody, a listener, wrote in a situation followed with a question to me. And 
my life ex I don't really have life experience that lines up with this particular listener um, but I wanted to address what she had written in and I happen to know somebody who has really similar life experience so this week's guest is Chanel Ali she is an incredible comic that's currently based out of New York she's been seen on MTV Comedy Central a bunch of other places and she also just debuted her album Chanel number no. one I pre-ordered it it's hilarious I had zero regrets and so I I'm really excited for this episode and um, you know, it was awesome that somebody took the time to write in and that we could do a whole episode based on their submission. So yeah, thank you guys for tuning in another week. Um, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. Follow the podcast on Instagram at is that embarrassing? Email, DM your questions, embarrassing moments, secrets, whatever you've got. And let's jump into it with Chanel Ali. Um, so, so how have you been? So you said that you're quarantining with your boy or with your boyfriend at his family's house. Um, has it been like a, a big adjustment leaving your space and everything like that? Yeah, it's been night and day. I mean, I went from a Brooklyn apartment with a bunch of comedians, like who stay out late and drink way too much and just everything is very fast paced in New York City to living literally in the mountains in Pennsylvania with my boyfriend and his dog. And it's like every day we feed fish and listen to running water. Like we're just mountain people now he loves cutting a lawn and we never ever used to have a lawn so (laughs) we both have had lots of moments of like real serenity and we feel really lucky to to feel like that even a little bit yeah especially just everything in general going on in the world absolutely um so you and I met at Eric Newman's birthday party I was there I didn't even know Eric I just got dragged along (laughs) um and you were sitting talking to Mara and I and just your I started following you kind of in your comedy after that because your energy and the vibe that you gave off was just so sincere and I appreciate people like that um so that's you know when we'll lead into why I have you on the show today um a little bit later but that was just something that I've always appreciated about you so how long have you been doing comedy I've been doing comedy for a little over seven years that's a long ass time. It is. Like I could have been a doctor. I <laughs> if I put this time towards other things, I would have elevated or start to be really elevating in that space. So in a weird way that gives me more confidence in the fact that I committed to it. And, and now I'm seeing so much, so many fruits of my labor because, you know, with anything, if you want to be really good at it, if you want to be one of the best, you have to practice. You have to really put the time in and, I studied comedy and just breathed it every day, just every day. Yeah. And that, that's a good point because a lot of people, I think, I mean, 
you can group comedy into so many different types of people, right? But we for sure have the people who get up and do two or three open mics and then they just kind of are like, I can't do it because they can't handle bombing or the rejection or whatever it is. And then you have the people who, after a year or so, again, they just kind of fall off. They get a normal nine to five, whatever it is. And mm -hmm. so to be committed to something for that long is huge. Um, and like you said, it's starting to pay off. So you just dropped a, an album recently. Yeah, I just dropped my album a few days ago. And it's just, it, it's crazy to see. Like it charted, it landed number two on the, the U.S. comedy charts which is really incredible to have an album debut on the chart already, let alone num the number two spot. Yeah. Um, I beat Weird Al Yankovic. He had a project that came out and I beat him. And it's like, if I could go back in time and tell 12 year old Chanel, Hey, one day you're going to put out a thing. It's going to do better than Weird Al. Yeah. She, she would never believe it, you know? So it's been really exciting. It's been really a labor of love. You know, it took a long time to put, an hour's worth of jokes together and get them to the point where I felt ready to record. And then I had to do the actual show and hope that the, they came out the way I wanted and then edit it. So it's, it's taken probably about eight months to do it. But um, now that it's here, I'm, I'm really proud of it. Yeah, you should be too. I pre-ordered it. And then the, like when you pre-ordered, you got to like early access to two, um, bits, I guess you could say. And I forced everyone in my household to listen. I was like, oh my gosh, I know this girl. <laughs> That's so great. So yeah, I would, and I was like upright when it dropped, I was ready to listen. So incredibly proud of you. And it's not, you know, as surprised as you may be, it's not surprising for a lot of people that it was as successful as it was. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. So um, the reason that I, you know, am having you on the podcast today is um, so the premise of the podcast is we discuss secrets or things that people find embarrassing that they normally wouldn't tell other people. And for me, I've had things that I've kept a secret in my life. And the reason being um, that there was some kind of shame or stigma surrounding them. Um, and so I just, my whole intention with the podcast has been to create a safe space where people can discuss things openly and listeners can hope, hopefully relate. And um, so this is, this is the first time I'm doing an episode this way where I've based the guest around a um, listener submitted email. And mm -hmm. so when I read this email, I instantly thought about you because I listened to your old podcast that you had done. Um, and I knew just based on your conversation with Mara a little bit about um, your life and growing up. And so I want to kind of dive in if you're cool with that. Yeah, I'm totally ready. Cool. So um, I'm going to start by uh, reading the email. So I, I kind of talked back and forth with this girl, and she's so sweet. Um, I love her. I'm so honored to have her as a listener. Her name is Kate. She said she was fine with me disclosing that. Um, and this is what she wrote. Hey, Stephanie, I'm a 23-year-old living in Texas following your podcast thanks to the recommendation of a friend. Your spill the tea advice on Instagram always seems really concrete, so I'm hoping you may be able to help me. I've been dating a guy for about three months now, and things are going well so well that he recently invited me to his family's Father's Day celebration. This in itself was exciting to know that he wants them to meet me. He then proceeded to tell me that after we leave his family's, he's happy to go with me to mine. Here's the issue. I responded, okay, knowing that I don't have parents. 
I never knew my father and my mother died at a young age due to a dr drug overdose. I spent a lot of my life with distant family members or in and out of foster care. I really trust my boyfriend and I do want to tell him, but most people respond to this part of my life with pity and I don't want it to change how he views me. I also worry because family is important to him and I have none. While he's excited to celebrate his dad, I often find myself resenting a man I've never even met. We don't have the same life experiences. Now I find myself in a situation where I responded okay to him meeting my family and I'm worried that he's going to feel like I was dishonest. Do you have any advice as to what I should do? If, what if he breaks up with me because I don't have family? What if he judges me because of how screwed up my family was and the fact that my mom was a drug addict? I know this may not be that interesting to you, so if you don't have time to respond, I won't take it personally. Thanks what you, for what you do. Sincerely, Kate. <laughs> so there's a lot, right? And, um, and I read the email and I knew instantly, first of all, it is incredibly interesting to me. Um, and, but I knew that I don't have life experience to match up with this person. Um, and so I wanted to bring on somebody who does enter you, Chanel Ali. <laughs> yeah. So what was your name, Kate? Yes. Yeah. Well, shout out, to, shout out to Kate for being a dope orphan. Um, I'm bringing back the term orphan. I've been on a crusade for a long time. I myself am an orphan. And we're not, you know, chimney sweepers anymore. We're yeah. out in the world being regular people, having healthy relationships. And um, it's impressive every day that, you know, you, you're out here spreading love, that you're finding new love. That's an accomplishment in itself. Um, so the first thing I want to say is that you shouldn't be hard on yourself about lying because that really comes from the goodness in you. Having that type of reaction and saying, okay, it comes from you not wanting to be dishonest or tricky. It's really from you wanting to protect this person. And it's you knowing that you have something behind your, your curtain that's a little heavy. And you know from life experience that sometimes not everybody can handle that news, not in a regular conversation. So, you know, be easy on yourself about telling a, a small fib so that you can have a more comfortable day because you get to choose how, how and when you expose your trauma and nobody else gets to decide that for you. So if you have to lie every single day until you really feel ready, then that's something that you have to do for you, you know? Um, there's also another part of it where, you know, it's not natural to want to disclose everything about your family, especially if there's negative things like drugs or illicit activity, um, because that comes from a good place in your heart that you don't want to talk bad about them, you know? So there's two folds to lying in those instances. And I believe that both of those type of traits that you're trying to prevent or those type of events that you're trying to prevent from happening in a conversation, it really comes from a good place. So being able to go back and backtrack and say, actually, I, I said, okay, but the reality is I don't have parents is perfectly fine. And no rational person should judge you harshly for that. You know? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it's always hard in a relationship, I think, to know early on how long this is going to last or how serious this person is going to be. But I do think that as an orphan, we have to be really honest with ourselves and how we know we've built connections and that it can be very hard to get really close to a person and their family and then have that relationship dissolve and go back to your norm. 
So it's important that you protect yourself in, in that sense as well without getting too close into your very confident this relationship has legs, this relationship is going to be more than something that only lasts for a little bit, and that this person really cares about you, that their family is also going to care about you as well. So as far as advice on what you should do is that you absolutely should tell him your story, but you should tell him your story as you want to tell him. You know, you don't have to tell him every single detail. And um, it's fine to abandon that mission if it starts to feel too much or if you feel like his reaction isn't you know what's healthy for you because if in telling a guy this information about yourself and his reaction or his reaction after he's had time to contemplate it isn't healthy for you then you already know that your relationship with him is always going to be lacking he's he's always going to fall short of giving you the level of support that you need because he doesn't know how to handle it which may not mean that his character is flawed it just means that his life experience doesn't allow him to sympathize with people that are drastically different than him. Um, I think in a weird way, being an orphan, you have a, you're kind of lucky in that you don't have to introduce your family to, to other families and deal with that drama that inevitably happens, you know? Inevitably. <laughs> that the mother's not liking mothers and the father's not liking fathers. Um, so what I have done and what I really suggest a lot of other orphans do is kind of recondition your thinking so that you're not always thinking, I don't have a mom, I don't have a dad, even though that is very true and I don't want to make light of that. Think of it more as I'm uninhibited about the decisions that I make every day and what I decide to do with my life and who I decide I want to be because I don't have the influence of a mom and a dad. And I can tell you as someone who has dated people who didn't have parents or did have parents, uh, overwhelmingly, the people who did have parents struggled with their personal identities that much more because they were constantly worried about their parents being proud of them. They were constantly yeah. worried about attaining a certain level of success or money or fame um, to make them proud. And they were even more worried about their legacy and the fact that they would have to one day do the same job that their parents did and hope that they could do it as well. So in being an orphan, you kind of bring this freedom to the table and that a man can come in your life and that you guys can build a life together and there's no influence on your end other than what you want. And there's power in that. There's power in being a cool chick who doesn't have to answer to anyone, you know? And I, and I really encourage other orphans to really take heart in that, that feeling and, and, and amplify that emotion. You know, I even say it's important to notice in popular culture, when you read comic books or you watch cartoons, Superman and, 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 and Batman and all of these incredible people who did incredible things, uh, didn't have parents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's were, a great point. They were orphan superstars because they could be, because they had the freedom to be. So when you condition yourself to think like that, it's much easier to introduce your lifestyle and frame it that way, as opposed to saying, I don't have, I don't have. You can say, I have the ability to live each day the way I decide I want to do it and be the person I am um, because my parents are here and I can build on our name and our legacy and rewrite my family history because I have the opportunity to. So that's a, just a healthy way of, thinking about your situation and, and pulling power from it because it is and, and recognizing every day that you have beat the odds 
because a lot of people rely on their parents tooth and nail. They need their parents to survive and that security blanket is all that keeps them going. But because you continually self-motivate and because you're capable of loving other people, you know, you have built up on something that's your own. And that's just, you know, again, that just comes from the goodness in you. Yeah, those are all really valid points. Um, so I want to kind of get, I mean, you obviously have a lot of experience, um, that this advice, you know, is coming from. And so I kind of want to dive into, to that experience in your childhood, if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, sure. Your childhood, you were obviously born into a family where was both your mother and your father present when you were born. So my, uh, my mother, when I was born was definitely experimenting with drugs and I got, I my her my father must have split prior to her actually giving birth but my uh mother i lived with her until i was 2 and then i was taken away from her by child care services because of neglect because obviously she was having a lot of issues and i was put in the care of my grandmother um for the next few years now unfortunately my grandmother was also doing drugs oh my god <laughs> because um you know it was rampant in this particular neighborhood of new jersey in the 90s um and so child services intervened again and they took me away from my grandmother and then i became a foster kid and i moved around in foster homes and with distant relatives um just like kate said um until i was 18 then i went to high school then i went to college by myself and then after college i decided i think i want to try comedy <laughs> and okay I tried comedy, and here we are Okay. So, so your mother was unfit. You moved out of there um, around the age of two and with your grandma. What prompted that move? Um, I mean, the story that I heard, because obviously I was very young, is yeah. that um, I had an uncle, her brother, who visited. And when he saw, like, the condition of her apartment and just kind of, like, in terms of her just having food, like, it was her cabinet fully stocked for having a two-year-old, he felt like something was wrong. Um, and this was unbeknownst to him. He didn't know that she was experimenting with drugs. He just thought something mentally was wrong with her. Maybe she was suffering from depression or something. Yeah. Postpartum. He didn't know what it was. So he asked, um, a few of her neighbors if they had seen anything weird and they agreed. They said that they had also seen some activity they thought was strange. And so that actually prompted him to reach out to, to child services. And when they did a wellness check, they very quickly decided that it wasn't really a great, a great environment. Okay. So then they uh, placed you in your grandma's home and you lived there for how long? I lived with her for probably about three and a half years until I was almost six. Okay. So I started, I started going to school while I was living with her. And um, I think that's when I noticed the difference is once I started going to school, I just recognized that kids were talking about their homes and you know, just more excited to go home at the end of the day yeah. than I was. And I guess that was my first time being enlightened to the fact that my my home activity with my grandmother was unusual. I had I had no idea prior to that. Um, and then one day I just so happened to go to the doctor and the doctor saw some bruises that he thought were suspicious and decided to call child services. And they did a home inspection again and decided that it was unfit. And then they took me out of there. Wow. Yeah. It's your experience is very opposite because most kids who are growing up in like a remotely normal family dread going to school, enjoy coming home. And that, that was kind of reversed for you. So, I mean, thank goodness for that doctor. And I mean, we automatically trust doctors to always do the right thing, but also 
so many of them are like working long hours and, you know, oversights happen. Um, and so thank goodness he was attentive. But in that moment, were you, were you kind of nervous? Like, did he ask you straight up about the bruises in front of your grandma or what was that like? He did ask me in front of her. Um, she was kind of preoccupied with my baby brother who was, who was actually, oh, where, yeah, we were actually, Mm-hmm. So I had a baby brother. My mom, my mom had a had a child, and they immediately took him from her at birth, and placed him in the care of my grandmother as well. So we were going to the doctor a lot more now because we had a newborn baby. And um, one day we were at the appointment for him, and the doctor notices the bruises on me. I think he saw them like just here on my neck and kind of on my shoulders, and he asked me about them. And before I could respond, my grandmother answered for me and said that I had fallen off my bike. Um, and I remember my heart racing because I remember thinking, oh my God, like, I think this guy, I think he knows what's going on. Like, I think he has an inclination, like maybe he's just a really smart doctor. I don't know, but I think he, I think he can see it. Maybe this is it. Maybe something will happen out of this conversation. And maybe me and my, obviously my newborn brother will get out of here because I definitely remember fearing for his life and feeling like if something didn't happen, both of us were going to have really hard lives or maybe not survive if we stayed in that place. So I remember being, and then then when they took me away from my grandmother, they actually pulled me out of school. Um, And when I came out of school, my teacher was there and I guess she had been talking to child services and she said to me, they're going to take you back to your grandmother's house. You're going to get your things or you're not going to live there anymore. Um, I just remember thinking, oh shit, like that doctor, he did it. He must have you know, called somebody, he must have raised the flag, you know, because nobody else, you know, I, I definitely remember thinking that no one was ever going to find out that I was just going to be perpetually unhappy and living in this crazy scenario until who knows. I remember thinking it's it, this is it, this is life. So I, not being in this situation ever, I just can't imagine emotionally what I would feel like maybe fear that my grandma was going to be angry. Maybe, um, you know, fear of what living situation I'd be going into next, but overall you were just kind of alleviated that you were getting out of this situation for the time being. I would say, I would say it was maybe 80, 20, because I was definitely more aware at that point of how unhealthy it was living with her. But when we went to the house to get the things, of course she was there and she was throwing a fit. She was screaming and crying. I remember her over and over saying, you can't take these kids. You can't take these kids. You can't take these kids. And just hearing, you know, a woman scream like that for her blood is very moving, you know, regardless of the fact that it's somebody you're related to. It's just, you could hear a woman on the street, on the street screaming for her kids and that, you know, it really touches you. So I remember feeling for her and and being sad and, and never really ever wanting her to get in trouble. I wanted to leave but I didn't want her to get in trouble for it. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But it was kind of one of those things where obviously I felt bad for her, but it was like, this is a necessary evil. You know, it's something that's going to have to happen because I really, really feared for our lives. I really remember feeling like we're just not going to make it if this is it. Was she physically abusive towards your brother at that time too? Because he was kind of younger, right? She wasn't, luckily, because he was so brand new. Um, in in a weird way, him being so brand new or just him coming into the scenario, I think saved us because it was something that she had to, you know, she had to take him to the hospital. She had to, you know, do these checkups. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I'm very lucky that, um, he didn't 
get to experience anything negative and that he doesn't remember really even that whole time period. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you go to the house, your grandma has a meltdown, you get your stuff. And then were you automatically placed in a house that night, like with a family or what did that look like? Interesting enough, the community um, that knew my grandmother really tried to rally around her in the next few weeks. So I lived with a neighbor for a few days. I lived with my teacher, my first grade teacher. I lived with her for a few weeks. Um, And I remember her telling me every day, like, you can't tell the kids when we get to school, you can't tell them that you're living with me. Like, we have to keep it a secret. And I remember feeling very, like, very sneaky. Like, I live with the teacher, nobody knows. Like Matilda. (laughs) You were the real life Matilda. (laughs) I remember thinking, like, ha, 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 I I know all the answers, you know. Um, uh, So, so yeah, they rallied around her for a few weeks, I think, because I, I don't, I don't know all the logistics, but I do think that they tried to give her an opportunity to, you know, argue her case, to explain why things were the way they were. And when she couldn't, and when they weren't satisfied, then they really did put us in the system. And we were just living with strangers. So we lived with maybe like five or six families over the next few years. So um, that that first family, did you and your brother were moved together, I take it, or? Unfortunately, no, we weren't. We weren't. So the first family they placed us in, they took me out of school again. So they came and got me out of school. And because my brother was brand new, he wasn't with me in school. He was, you know, he was a baby. Right. So they took me to the house. And I remember it was a young couple and they had kids that were about my age. Pretty nice house, lots of toys, I remember. And they were giving me a tour of the house. And um, at the end of the tour, they were like, all right, so this is it. You know, you're going to be living here from now on. And I was like, cool. Uh, You know, where's my brother at? And they were like, "Um, I think he's getting placed in a, you know, a different home. And I just remember taking one good look around the room and making a firm decision that I would break everything in there until they got him. So I threw a huge tantrum and I broke their glass uh, coffee table. I flipped oh it. Oh my God. I've done it. <laughs> I'm like six and a half. I'm like not an adult, but I think I had learned, especially at that point in my life, that if you didn't show people that you were serious, then they weren't going to help you. Yeah. Um, so I flipped the table, it broke. And I remember them both being like shocked and being like, okay, trying to calm me down. Like, we're going to call someone. We're going to call someone. We're going to figure it out. And the mom got on the phone with one of the social workers and was like, listen, this kid's not going to chill. She's not going to chill unless they're together. So you got to get that baby. You got to bring him over here. I don't know where he is, but you, they have to be together because she's not going to chill. And after that, they never separated us again. Holy shit. (laughs) So you did that. Like you said, like you're a child, but you, you knew there was one way to kind of have your voice heard. And I mean, if it worked, which is incredible, it's great. Kind of like, I kind of just really understood the system at that point. So I was like, I understand that you guys have to answer to other people about taking in these kids. So I know you're not allowed to discipline me. I know you can't hit me. I know that somebody's going to come check on me in the next few hours. Yeah. So I remember feeling safe to really, you know, let it out and be like, look. To break I'm, shit. <laughs> like, I don't care. I know you're not going to ground me. I might not even live here anymore. Go get this kid, you know. Um, wow. But I, I just remember knowing, really deep down knowing, before I could even verbalize it, that it was so unsafe for us to be separate. Because not only were we living with strangers, but we had just come from such a toxic place that to me, it felt like if we're going to go through this foster care thing, if we're going to do it, we have to do it together or else 
how will we ever heal? How will we ever have a chance, you know? So I'm, you know, really happy that I broke that table. I would break it again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that makes sense. I mean, in my uh, opinion, so again, no experience, but I've read a lot on like the foster care system. I've considered eventually down the road, you know, maybe fostering or adopting. And I grew up um, next to a foster home, actually. I grew up next to a couple who fostered the entire time we lived there. And so I had a little bit of exposure, um, you know, into that situation. But based on all of that, my opinion is that the state's not equipped to be a parent, right? And so do you think that kids would benefit more if the state invested more money into actually offering like intensive services that strengthen and like rebuild families like for example like did they do anything to try to help your mother like did they try to put her through rehab or offer her any services so that she could come out stronger and you know your family could maybe reunite at some point um you know looking back on it i felt like they were much more punitive than they were counseling it just Mm -hmm. seemed much more like they were enforcing a punishment and the punishment on my mother was we took your kids until you get clean and until you get clean and come show us that you're clean you can't have your kids back so those two incidents weren't really connected or they didn't support her in trying to reach point a to point b from what i saw it was much more like checking in with her like are you clean yet no well then we're going to keep your kids and you know hoping sense like depending on your experience for a lot of kids that's more of a punishment to the kid than it is the parent you know so there's a flaw there and i remember obviously being too young to totally understand uh you know the concept of drug use or what was really wrong with my mom so people would always say you know your mom is sick and until she gets better she can't take care of you because she's sick and she's got to take care of herself and i would remember saying to people why don't they give her medicine? (laughs) Mm. Which was my kind of simple, dumbed down way of saying, why do you guys just keep saying this lady is sick and then, you know, locking the door? Like, let's help her if she's sick. And I, and I remember my grandmother in a, in the same way that us getting taken away from my mother was punitive. Us getting taken away from my grandmother was punitive in that same way. I remember her very immediately getting clean, very immediately recognizing like, oh, sh- oh shit, I've lost these kids. These kids are in the system. I have to stop doing drugs. I have to get in my right mindset. I have to be able to take care of them. So I remember her being really motivated by the fact that we were in the system, but she was never able to regain custody, even though she did get clean and she was, you know, had a very good job and was taking care of herself and honestly could have taken care of us. They were never, you know, willing to really consider uh, us going backwards. Did you have opportunities to see her after that? Like after she had gotten clean, did you ever talk to her? Did she apologize? Anything like that? Like what kind of, what did that relationship look like? You know, it's it's really complicated. I did see her a good amount. We talked a lot, I would say, especially um, in my teenage to adulthood years. I would say we were much more close. Um, I can't say that we ever really had a firm conversation about the abuse because it's very difficult. Um, mm-hmm. But what I can say is that she opened up to me a lot more as I got older about her mistakes that she made specifically with drugs and with men and with just, you know, not really being ready to be a grandma, let alone a mother. Mm -hmm. Um, 
she opened up with me enough that I feel like in my adulthood, I can understand. I can't really sympathize with why she did the things that she did um, and how a lot of the things in my family transpired, but I can understand and have some perspective that at the end of the day, I think my grandmother loved us very much. And I think she was really very tired by the time she got two brand new kids. So, um, you know, I, I feel like we made peace. That's really good. So you um, moved around, you and your brother both moved around in the foster care system until you were 18. Um, did you, like, was the goal ever to get adopted? Did you think you would get adopted? Was it something that you wanted? The goal was always more so that my mom was supposed to regain custody. And because they, everyone, like the system and, you know, just everyone that was involved with it was focused on that. They never really put us up for adoption or even, I don't think, considered getting us in the, I don't know, the Rolodex. I don't know how they do <laughs> with <Yeah. laughs> orphans that are already in the system. Um, and so then after maybe I was 12 and it, and it started to really kind of settle in that she wasn't really getting clean or that she wasn't mentally capable of taking care of anybody else but herself, then they started to be more focused on placing us in long-term foster homes, like with distant relatives or with people who had space but were familiar with the family, you know, um, stuff like that. So I don't remember ever feeling like, man, I wish I had brand new parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Understandably so. <laughs> you know, I remember thinking like, ah, I think I'm good on parents. You yeah, know? you're like, all of these adults keep letting me the fuck down. Get them out of here. <laughs> I just keep breaking tables whenever I need to get adults to act right. Like, I'm exhausted. Yeah, so I honestly don't ever remember, like, wishing for that. I don't remember thinking, like, dang, I just, maybe let's try some new ones. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like you were really forced to grow up quickly, and you created, like, um, a uh, peridium where, like, being strong was the only option, for especially for, like, your brother too, right? Did you feel like you had to fall into almost a motherly role with him? Did those, like that mother-sister dynamic ever kind of cross? Absolutely. I definitely remember a time specifically when he was young where I had to sit him down and say to him, I'm not your mom. You're saying mom sometimes and I'm actually not. Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm your sister and we're really not that far in age. So (laughs) you're like in the grocery store, people are looking like mom. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) They're doing math. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I just, I, I feel like I don't know if ever my story would be the way that it is if I didn't have my little brother because he, as soon as he came into my life, was a very, very big motivator and still is um, mm-hmm. because I always felt like if I failed, if I failed at life as an orphan and wasn't a successful adult, that I would somehow set him up for the same type of course. And so just having the motivation of knowing that I needed to show him that it could be done was enough to sustain me putting myself through college and, you know, just being an adult and, you know, being healthy and happy because I never wanted him to have that excuse of saying like, you know, my sister couldn't do it. Um, Especially around the time when I was maybe 10 or 11, I was really very suicidal. I was just so depressed and so tired. And the only reason I went and got help, literally went to my teacher and said, I I need you to find a counselor. I have to talk to someone. I'm going to hurt myself. Um, Was because I needed to be healthy for this kid. You know, he was very Mm -hmm. young and I felt like I was literally just thinking of ways to harm myself in in a room with him and so I just remember thinking like it's not really even about me I have to get healthy so that I can take care of this kid and I need to ask people for help yeah well I think that that in 
in a way because hearing that I'm like, oh, but like also you, <laughs> like you were worth living and like, look at everything you're doing now. And, and so, but I think that in a way that love for your brother probably in some sense taught you to have like a deeper love for yourself, right? Like you, Absolutely. you yeah. And, and that's parenthood, actually. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's motherhood. Yes. And I, and that's another message I wanted to send to Kate, you know, and being an orphan, it's not really that you, you're without parenting. We are self-parenting. We're, we're taking care of ourselves and motivating ourselves and holding ourselves accountable. And that is love. You're, you, you have so much love in you. And the fact mm-hmm. that every day you love yourself enough to keep going is really beautiful and powerful because some people learn love from, you know, watching others do things for them, but having this outlet and being able to, you know, just care about yourself and work on yourself all the time is really dope. And I think even as a girlfriend, it's something that orphans should consider a strength because I know that most of my friends that also happen to be orphans are really good at loving. They're really Mm -hmm. good at being very understanding and having good perspective and you know, being strong and also being vulnerable in a really beautiful way. You stated that you kind of bounced around like extended family, strangers, people within the community. Um, were What were the dynamics like when you were like moving into a house with other kids? Um, I became like really good at discerning what was happening in a household pretty quickly. So anytime I like first moved into a house, I would kind of take a once over and I would catalog what I thought the issues were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd be like, okay, this mom clearly has a drinking problem. This dad works too much. And some of these kids seem to have, you know, issues with their sexuality. Some of these kids are clearly acting out because they've experienced abuse. So now all they think is that it's okay to just abuse anyone. But what I can say from meeting other kids in the system is that orphan children have um, knowledge beyond their years. Um, So I, I, I learned a lot from living with kids who had similar backgrounds. I learned a lot from kids who don't have parents to help them find things that interest them or make them happy and kids who have to find out those things on their own. They have to define what really sparks them. Yeah. I just, I just feel like I learned so much. I learned a lot about different cultures, different people and how they keep their homes, different religions, even going to churches, going to churches with various families. And so, you know, I, I really got to experience a lot of different things and decide which part, which values I wanted to take with me or what, what I believed, you know, made up a good person. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the questions that I was like teetering on the edge of, is this something I want to dive into, especially with the current climate of everything going on? But I definitely do was, I, you know, I think that there are a lot of conversations that are had within black households that aren't had within white households, right? And like an example in today's news would be how to deal with the police, right? Like you, like black people have to have conversations with their children. Parents have to have conversations with their children as to how to interact with police. And I mean, it's not limited to that, right? Like there, there's an entire culture. And so were you ever placed in the black households? Did anyone ever teach you like these are things that you need to know as yeah, a I black did. woman? Yeah, absolutely. I did have a couple of foster parents that were black, like foster couples, uh, a husband and a wife who were black, who um, 
used to play like record albums around the house that were like Martin Luther King speeches or Malcolm X speeches. And we definitely had open discussions about things that happened in the media and, and the implications there. Um, now, my mother is uh, Indian and Italian. Um, okay. and my dad, my dad is black. So on my mother's side, I'm the only black person. Even my little brother, because we have different dads and his dad is not black. My little brother isn't black. <laughs> okay. So there was this dynamic of being the black girl in a family um, that's not black. So, you know, my grandmother that was abusive is a white woman. She's a hundred percent Italian, but um, they all had to recognize that a lot of parts of my life were going to be different. So I remember, you know, my grandmother spending a lot of time educating me about my hair. I remember her spending a lot of money mm -hmm. and a lot of effort finding people in the community that could do my hair because she couldn't or do it the way that she couldn't. And that she even would pay them to sit down and really talk to me. And also my, my uncle, who's an, an Indian man, um, I remember him making very like, harsh conversations with me in preparation for what he thought I should know. Like, you need to understand that as a black woman, when you walk outside, this is what people see. And you need to prepare yourself for that so that you can understand why they make inferences about you or why they ask you about certain things, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really grateful when I think back about those conversations, because I do feel that mentally I was extremely prepared um, to just be a, a black adult or right. a young black person. Um, because I had those those people in my life. And I would also say that uh, in comedy, I'm really lucky that a lot of Black comics have pulled me aside and, and given me, you know, really important insight into being a Black entertainer or a young Black woman entertainer and, and the type of dangers that is out there, the type of realities that I have to face and how mm -hmm. my reputation could be affected if I respond in a way that's, you know, considered outlandish or if I need to stand up for myself. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great that you had that um, sense of community and almost in a sense like a chosen family, right? Because these are people who maybe not have always been, maybe it wasn't always someone who is an immediate family member, but they were people who cared about your well-being. Absolutely. And when people ask me in a general sense, you know, growing up without parents, like, how did you do it? I always say that, you know, I, I invested in people who showed me real genuine love. Mm -hmm. So even if they, if it was my teacher or if it was, you know, a girl down the street and her family, like whatever it was, I recognized the difference between people that loved and cared about me and people that, you know, were just there. And when you can recognize that and only invest your energy into those people, they take care of you back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a skill. It's like a strength that you've definitely possessed. So, yeah. and that kind of leads me into, you had mentioned a little bit earlier, um, talking about different families and walking in and being able to read the situation. You said that you could pick up and like, look at a mom and be like, oh, she's an alcoholic. So were you placed in, in families that were, you know, just as broken as yours possibly? Like, were you placed in families that were, um, were flawed in that sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I think when I think back about every single foster home, I think they all had very severe issues in one sense or the other, maybe not as severe as physical abuse, but severe as, you know, mental abuse or racism or, you know, just wild religious beliefs. It seemed like 
issues were issues. And, and this is also back when I think the system wasn't as well kept that is, as I hope it is today. And I think back mm-hmm. then, especially because I was getting out of a situation where people were doing drugs and, and motivated by money to get drugs, some of those foster parents were motivated the same way. Because if you take in a foster kid, you get a certain amount of money per month. Now with me and my little brother, you get double that. So yeah, I, I, I found a lot of people that were motivated by money instead of just like helping or wanting to have a happy, healthy household. Um, and I, I definitely saw alcohol abuse, drug abuse. Um, you know, I also saw foster homes that I just felt like were breeding grounds for nefarious activity because like you said, people in the community knew that it was a foster home. They knew like, oh, this lady takes in all these kids and there's always a bunch of kids there and they're Mm -hmm. not always, you know, being watched or accounted for. So those sometimes those environments, I think, can invite people that are just, you know, they have all types of ulterior motives. Honestly, if I could say that first family, the one that I broke the table, honestly was probably they had the best heart. If I can remember (laughs) (laughs) They were probably the most on the up and up in terms of like, we have space and money and we want to take kids in who have, who need a place to stay. Yeah. So did you ever, you, you talked about them really vaguely in the beginning, but did you ever find out like who your dad was or get in touch with him? I did. Yeah. That's another crazy story. You ready for it? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> okay. So when I was 17, a social worker sent me a letter and said, Hey, I found this guy's name on a piece of paper that your mom filled out forever ago. And we think there's a possibility that he's your dad. Um, we're going to subpoena him for his saliva. We're going to force him to give us saliva. Um, or else we're going to threaten him with jail time. I hate to be like so pessimistic and negative, but I feel like their incentive wasn't because they wanted to know for you, right? So yeah. like, what was their incentive? Their incentive was money. Their incentive was, was when you're in the system and foster care parents are getting money for you every month, they keep a tally of that. That's government money that they're sending to the, these foster parents. Here's $400. Take care of this kid this month. So they keep mm-hmm. a tally. So by the time you're 18, that's thousands and thousands of dollars that they've plus, been paying. Plus you so, have the receipt for the broken table. Exactly that. <laughs> you have expenses. <laughs> so when you get older, especially, the government wants to recoup that money. And the only way they can recoup it is to find your parents, prove that they're your parents, and then take their money. And that's exactly what they did to my father. They didn't ask him for a check. Once they, once the test came back that he was my dad and that honestly he was pretty wealthy at the time, they mm-hmm. went into his savings account and they took it. Now, when the test came back and I got the letter in the mail saying that he was my father, that's all it said. It said, he's your dad. DNA's a match. Thanks for your time. It didn't say where he lived. It didn't say his phone number. It, it, they didn't try to connect us at all. That was never their mission. Their mission was to get the money. Now, what I had heard was that because my mother had always told me that this guy was my dad, she had never wavered on not knowing who my dad was. She had said, this was his name. And that was the name on the paper that I got. So before I took the test, I felt confident that it was him. But my mother had told me that the reason that they had kind of fallen out of contact years ago was that he had become a cop. Oh, and, that, and she was um, doing drugs. <laughs> Right. What a combo. They were not on the same page in terms of lifestyle. So what I did was because I knew my mother had met him in New Jersey, I started calling every police station in New Jersey. Oh my God, this is some like lifetime. Oprah's going to love it. 
you know? <laughs> and I bring it to her, she's gonna be like, this is incredible. So I called every police station. I spent like maybe two days doing it. How and old I, were you at this point? I was 17. I was about okay. to turn 18. Okay. I had just gotten the paternity test and I just, you know, I only had his name. I didn't have anything else. And because he was a cop, he's unlisted. So it's not oh, like- Oh yeah, crime. you can't find them at all. Yeah, find them at all. So it was like, it's almost like him being a cop protected him from being a father. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In this wow. crazy okay. So what I, one day I just, by stroke of the luck, I happened to call the right police station and the guy on the phone was such a dick. I'll never forget. And he was like, yeah, we have a guy named that. And I was like, well, you know, cause I'm like shaking. I'm like, well, can I talk to him? And he's like, he's on duty, man. Well, you can leave a message. And so I was like, fine, just tell him, you know, my name and give him my phone number. And I remember thinking, look, I'm going to leave this guy my name and my phone number and that's it. And if he calls, he calls. And if he doesn't, then I know. And then I don't need to worry about it anymore. So mm-hmm. it took a while. It took a few days. Then eventually he called and, you know, um, we've met and we, um, I would say we established a relationship as much as we could at that point. And then I started college. And then uh, basically when I started, when I graduated college, I just felt like I, I struggled in being okay with certain parts of his lifestyle as a cop. Yeah. And I struggled with um, feeling like I just didn't get the level of support that he had promised me. Um, and so our relationship kind of started to dissolve and now we really don't, we don't talk much. So when you found out, you know, yes, this is the guy and he's a cop and he's, you know, relatively successful. Was it difficult to like process that this person who is your father was someone who potentially had their shit together? Because in my mind, I was not expecting you to be like, oh yeah. And by the way, he was like a cop who was successful. I was expecting you to be like, yeah, he was like some drug, you know, something that matched up to your mother's story. I don't know if it was hard. I think maybe it was a little more surprising. He, He was a pillar of a lot of communities. And if you look him up, there are so many stories of him saving children, like diving into a pool and saving a baby and then resuscitating it and getting like an award. There are so many stories of him being like an exemplary officer. So it just made me understand that there were times before he became a police officer, there were times in his life when he did things that were much more reckless and much more irresponsible. And then once he cleaned it up, he cleaned it up. Hmm. It's interesting that there's like all of these stories about him saving children, right? And then his own kid. Did he know that like you were potentially his kid? Like, did he have an idea of your existence? He did, yeah. And we, we had at length discussions about that when we first met. And he was apparently there for my birth. He was there and my mother lived with him um, when I was a baby wow. for apparently a few months. And he said that during that time, he discovered that she was doing drugs and that they broke up because of that. And that he tried for a while to uh, get a paternity test and determine if I was his daughter. But then because she lost custody so quickly and I was moving around so much that he just kind of, you know, wasn't really able to ever find out for sure. And then he got married to someone else and, you know. I mean, interesting story for a cop. They're pretty good at finding shit usually. (laughs) Like, I'm just so mad. Like, I'm like, it's just, oh, it's frustrating. And I'm sure it was for you. It is frustrating. And, And honestly, when I think about it, I'm really not very positive that I'm the only one. I, I feel like I probably have brothers and sisters that are out there wow. whose cases never came to fruition. And, um, 
you know, unfortunately, they're not going to get any type of answers. But I, I, I do think that. So, um, so were you able to kind of write off like his past because you said you let him into your life for a certain amount of yeah. time? I absolutely did. I remember firmly making a decision before I even called the police stations that day that if I was going to have him in my life, I had to forgive everything. And I am really the type of person that lives a lot more for tomorrow than I do yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I, I very much conditioned myself to understand that we can't go back. I cannot get him to go back and be my dad at 12 when I probably really needed him. But at 17, I thought, let's start, you know, let's start fresh and see what happens. But um, a lot of things happened. It's a, it's a lot to try to break down, but I think at the core of it, um, I had to be really brave with my <laughs> brand new cop dad and acknowledge that there were parts of him as a person that I thought were not good. And if you know anything about strong male cops, telling them that they're not good is very hard for them to hear. Oh, absolutely. Men in general don't like their ego to be hurt, but yeah, you throw on all those other, you know, factors and yeah. yeah. And I, I definitely think that I sacrificed what could have been a bit of a faux relationship with him. If I had just smiled and said, you know, everything's fine. But, um, pretty much as soon as I voiced my concerns over things that he had done, just, you know, in my adulthood, um, he wasn't ready for that type of criticism and, you know, our relationship never recovered, but I don't really have any regrets whatsoever for it. And I do think that one day he's going to come around probably when he sees me on HBO talking about him. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But I don't have any regrets about it because if you can understand the type of influence that my brand new cop dad had on me at 17 to stand up to his intellect and tell him that things that he was doing were wrong and that he wasn't a good person in his heart um, made me more brave than I can explain. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I I just don't have any regrets about it. And you, I mean, also you survived for so long without him that, yeah. Um, and I want to, to speak to that point, to, to talk to Kate, I want to say that, you know, being an orphan is hard. It's hard work every day. And you cannot allow people in your life to make that job harder. So regardless if they're your blood or not, if they're your best friend, whatever it is, you know, I have learned that I cannot let people make my load too heavy. Mm-hmm. And you have to protect yourself in that way because nobody else is standing up for you. Nobody else is going to tell people, Hey, that's too much. Don't put that on her shoulders. So you have to, you know, show them you have to make, make your, you have to stand up for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you definitely have probably more life experience than any 50 year old adult that I know. (laughs) Um, So it's a huge part of the reason why I wanted to bring you on and share your story. Um, you know, obviously to address Kate's question, but also because I know, I know for a fact people that in my personal life who are listening, listeners of the podcast and have stories similar to yours, you know? Um, and so, and so I'm really glad that you were willing to, you know, be vulnerable and honest and open up about that experience. Um, were, were you ever at any point just to kind of like, I guess in conclusion and in response to Kate's situation, were you ever nervous or embarrassed to tell people about your childhood and your family experience? Yeah, I definitely was nervous sometimes. And I think especially now because people meet me under the guise of being a comedian. So Mm -hmm. 
it's unusual to see a young woman say like, oh, my profession is that I'm a comedian. That's unusual. So a lot of times when I say that, people's first question is, how do your parents feel about that? And um, for a while, I would just lie. I would be like, they love it. They think I'm so funny and they're both doctors. It's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, these were people that I was meeting after a comedy club or like, you know, at an after whatever party. And I just. They came to like laugh and you're like, well, actually. um, Let's talk about drugs. Let's talk about the system. So I just remember thinking like, you don't need to put them through this and they're not that integral to your life that you need to spill your whatever. Um, So yeah, there were times when I had a hard time doing it, but. Um, that's one of the reasons I started my podcast, Daddy List Issues, is because I wanted to break down that stigma. And when I got into comedy, I started to do a lot of interviews um, similar to this, I guess, where people would ask me very much specifically about my upbringing. And those interviews were often framed in how they thought it was, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I think people can be, you know, I don't want to say insensitive, but sometimes they can just not totally understand the severity of what we're talking about and what we're breaking down so um in fostering conversations like that myself I felt like I was able to learn better techniques and better tools to talk about it comfortably and like I said when we were giving advice to Kate to kind of flip it on its side that you're not without you are free from having restraints yeah absolutely I think that's a really unique perspective and a great perspective to approach it from. And, um, and I think also to what you said for anyone who's listening and doesn't have the experience, if you're found in a situation with someone who is like an orphan, um, maybe be slow to speak and just quicker to listen. You know, I think that's a, a practice that a lot of us need to utilize in a lot of different areas in our life and myself included. I'm like constantly working on learning skills to actively listen and to just be slow to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I think Kate is going to sincerely appreciate the advice. If she emails back, I will, um, (laughs) I will, you know, let her know or let you know, um, do you have anything, I know we talked about the album and stuff like that. Do you have anything that you want to plug on this episode? Um, you can get my brand new album, Chanel number one, anywhere comedy albums are sold, iTunes, all the good things. Um, I actually just booked my first voiceover series. It's a, um, kind of a teen drama called Apocalypse Untreated, which will be released on Audible soon. So look out for that. And then just follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Chanel underscore underscore Ali. That's Chanel like the perfume. Two underscores Ali like Muhammad. (laughs) Yes. And I'll make sure you're tagged in all of the posts, making it easier for everyone. Um, But yeah, I appreciate you, you being on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 